I'm gonna first read in Chinese, Mandarin, and then in English. 使徒行传十八章一到十一节。这些事以后，保罗离开雅典，来到哥林多。他遇见一个身在本都的犹太人，名叫亚居拉。不久前，他带着妻子百吉拉从意大利来，因为克劳地命令所有的犹太人都离开罗马，保罗去投靠他们。他们本是制造帐篷为业，保罗因他们同业，就和他们同住，一同做工。每逢安息日，保罗在会堂里辩论，劝导犹太人和希腊人。希拉和摩提泰从马其顿来的时候，保罗正专心传道，向犹太人证明耶稣是基督。当他们抗拒他、诽谤他的时候，他就抖掉衣裳的灰尘，对他们说。你们的罪归到你们自己的头上，与我无干。从今以后，我要往外邦人那里去。于是他离开那里，到了一个人的家里，他名叫提多·尤士都，是敬拜神的人。他的家靠近会堂，会堂的主管基利斯布和全家都信了主，还有许多哥林多人听了就信，而且受了喜。夜间，主在意象中对保罗说：“不要怕。”只管讲，不要沉默。有我与你同在，没有人会下手害你，因为在这城里有许多属我的人。保罗在那里住了一年六个月，将神的道教导他们。Acts chapter eighteen, verse one to eleven. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila. A native Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, "Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus, just as a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision: "Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you." And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. This is God's word. This is the word of God. Thank you, Steve. Let's、uh, let's pray, Father. We take a moment to ask you to attend our uh, our hearts, uh, the the deepest part of our being, to your word, which has just been read, and we declare it to be true. We thank you that it is designed to give us life, 
and to guide and direct us, no matter where we come from, no matter when we live, no matter how old we might be. These are the words of life that have been given to everybody. And we pray that you'd make our hearts sensitive to that word, that it would not just be something we hear, but also something that we do, that it would be more than just something in theory that it would seep into every fiber of our being and affect the way we live our lives, not just our actions, but even our thoughts, our motives, the intentions that we have. We need these things to be shaped by you, and your word is designed toward that end. So we pray for your Holy Spirit as we start a new series, and many people are starting new school years as students make new attachments and and study new subjects and are, are faced with new challenges. We pray that for those who call this place their, their community of faith, this will be an equipping station where they're given the right ways to think about life and where things that may be untrue are tested against what is true according to your word. Grow us all up. We do not want to be infants especially for those of us who've been walking with you for a long time. Take out the pacifier, and may we grow from those who need to drink milk to those who can eat solid food. And we pray that as we open up your words, then you would be glorified, and we would be moved to glorify you in all that we say and do. Now, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, that it would all be done for the glory of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I wonder when you hear the word church, what, what do you think of? It would be interesting for us maybe just to have a time where I say uh, church and then you say something back to me. In fact, let's try that. I say church, you say, wow, that's a lot of stuff coming out there too, but family I heard, yell it loud. Hymns, okay. Worship, okay. Prayer. Body of believers. Hypocrites. Yes. Actually, that's, that's kind of what I thought was going to come out first, those kind of things. So you're getting the mix here. That's good. What else would you say? Worship, hypocrites, family, fellowship, brotherhood. Okay, pretend you're a bunch of people who don't go to church for a second. If I go over to Walmart across the street or Kroger and I, and I speak over the loudspeaker and I say, I'd like everybody now to shout out what they think about church. Right now, what might they say? Confusing. Confusing. Judging. Scandal. Restrictive. Self-righteous. Everywhere. What do you mean Everywhere. <laughs> They're everywhere. There's church people. <laughs> Pardon me? Okay. Abusive. Wow. So isn't that interesting that we have a mix of answers? And I think if we were, well, you know, we had kind of the, the really positive things coming up first. But a lot of people have been hurt by the church, wounded by the church, disillusioned by the church. And people look at the church and say things like hypocrite, irrelevant. Uh, legalistic, judgmental, all those things you were saying as well. And yet I hear you saying family and, you know, connection and worship. Which is it? 
Well, when you open up the book of 1 Corinthians, don't you kind of get a sense of both? And so, as Steve alluded to, we're going to do this series called The Beautiful, Messy Bride of Christ. And they're both true. The, the church, the bride of Christ, is absolutely stunning in its radiance and beauty. Been purchased by the blood of Christ. Lives changed. Leave behind your regrets. Completely new starts for the most vile of individuals. And at the same time, a collection of individuals who continue to struggle with sin and aren't living out the high calling that has been put in front of them. It's messy. Some of you know, if you've been to weddings I do before, I'll sometimes refer to Shrek. And I haven't decided if I'm blasphemous or not yet in this. But when you look at the church, you see Shrek has some, some wonderful, uh, his, his bride has some wonderful qualities at times during the day, but at night becomes an ogre. And there's this tension even within the church. Are we beautiful or are we messy? Are we both? How does it all fit together? And when you open up a book like 1 Corinthians, you can't avoid that. It, there's such beauty there, and there's amazing messiness. A few weeks ago when I heard Chris Woodard preaching down at River of Life, he happened to be in a series in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection. It was a long series, and I came at the very, very end. And he made mention of the fact that when he was just exploring whether or not he really wanted to be a Christian, he went to a church. And they were preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And he said, as he listened to it, if God could love people like that, then I guess I can get in as well. That was what he took away from it. There's so much of a mess in the book of Corinthians. We'll talk a little bit about that now. But those are the ones Christ has set his life and laid his life down for. So we're beautiful. And we're also messy. And I think being realistic about that is a great pathway forward for each one of us. And maybe we'll shape our own vision of what the church is and who the church is. And perhaps even the people you know around you as well. So this, this book, uh, obviously we heard read from Acts chapter 18. That's where you see a beautiful, messy church being founded. Paul had gotten into uh, Corinth. This is just on the heels of his trip to Athens in Acts 17. And when he goes to Corinth, he does what he normally does. He goes into the religious place, the synagogue, and he begins to talk to people about who Christ is. And the Jews, as happened oftentimes, were, were arguing with him about whether Christ was the Messiah. That is the anointed one they were waiting for. If you read the Old Testament, it's all about the Messiah, he's coming. Jesus shows up. Paul first denies that he's the Messiah, then has this dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 19 where he meets Christ. His life has changed. Now he's laying his life down for the gospel. And his own brothers and sisters, the Jews, are rejecting that reality. But some do, some here. As he's in the synagogue, people respond. He's kind of kicked out. Others, though, receive the message. And you can see some of their names that are listed here, too. And he begins to talk about Christ, not only to those who haven't heard, but to this new group of believers. And he says, now that you know Christ is the Messiah, this is what it looks like to live in community 
together as brothers and sisters. Here's what it looks like. You know, Paul suffered a lot of persecution, but he's given the assurance in Acts 18 that there are many people in the city who belong to Christ. And so he stays, he lingers there. And, and he believes that as he stays for that amount of time, Christ is drawing new people into this community for 18 months. One and a half years he stays there. Quite a long time for him building into that new community. And then he'll move on from there. And the letter that we open up and read appears based on chapter 5, verse 9, maybe to be even the second letter that he's written. It's probably some three years after he's made that initial one and a half year stay. And he gets, gets wind from a person named Chloe of some of the things that are happening in this new church. Some problems have arisen. So he writes a letter and he says, I'm going to write back to this beloved community. And he's doing it because he wants to warn them from going back to where they came from. And not only back to where they came from, but now they're holding the name of Christ and other people are looking to see, is that what a Christian is? Is that what it means to be associated with the church? And he's horrified to learn that in some ways their lives look exactly like the people around them. Here, Christians who are supposed to be in Corinth and now Corinth has gotten into the Christians. And he says, that can't be. That's the occasion for writing this letter, 1 Corinthians. Now, Corinth itself was a city that, if you can see up there, right there kind of in the center to the left of Ephesus. It's, the map has the name sort of superimposed on this isthmus, right where that square is. So it had access from Italy up to your left and Rome. Could sail directly there. And then a six-mile trek where they would get some boats and transport them over to the other coastline there, all the way over into Asia. And Corinth was a bustling city. It was a business city. There were a lot of guilds that were there. And in order to be successful, you had to kind of align with these guilds. And as we'll see later, you could compromise your worship so that you could get some business advantage as well. Maybe fudge the numbers a little bit on your tax return so you have more money to spend. And that was one of the problems that arose. It was because it was such a city marrying these two places, a lot of Roman freedmen who were there, uh, uh, Jews from all around the place, immigrants who came in too. It was an incredibly diverse population with language, religion. What well, was a culture kind of like ours? A lot of prosperity. And Paul is writing to these individuals then, some three years later, and I want to give a brief overview of 1 Corinthians today. So we're going to look at the big picture, and then we'll be diving into smaller pieces. And really, there are three, three kind of big picture things happening here that I want to draw attention to. First, there are some problems in the church that have, have arisen he wants to call out. He's going to call out the problems. The second thing he does is respond to some specific issues that he'd heard about. Maybe they'd been written in a letter, or Chloe was reporting them, so he addresses these specific issues. And the third thing is, he's going to give some absolutely life-changing perspectives that if they latch on to, they'll grow from infancy to maturity. So let me, let me just give a brief overview of this. So we're going to walk through, uh, through the book, just highlight-type things. And you'll see this goes through each kind of chapter and progression. Here are some of the problems he calls out. First, there's divisions in the church. 
chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. This was a huge problem. They divided. And you can see later what that means. But they were aligning with people and philosophies and ideas. And what mattered more to those people was your alignment and your label rather than Christ. Okay? What, that could be a political agenda. That could be a, a business guild. That could be some, whatever your thing is too. There were divisions because you're saying we stand here. We are this kind of person and you're not. This is well before social media, folks. But it's the same kind of stuff that's going on. In chapter 3, he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. This is really the heart, it seems, of the issue is that they are just looking like the world because they're, they're tiny little infants you're just a baby in Christ. But he's already said some three, four and a half years. Just imagine if you were in the church pastored by Paul. He's coming house to house giving you instructions. You have no excuse. He wrote half the New Testament. Are you going to claim bad teaching? No. So the issue wasn't with what they were receiving. It was how they were receiving it. He says, you're just you're little babies. It's a problem. When you're a 30-year-old and you come with a pacifier to the dinner table and ask your mommy to feed you milk. It's not supposed to be that way. And he says the church is looking like that. This is a huge issue. There was a statement made by somebody I respect quite a bit in, in the previous church. Only been part of two churches. We're a church plant from a mother church. And a man who's a handful, I don't know, six, seven, eight years older than I, had been involved in the church a lot longer than I had been said this statement, we are not as mature as we think we are. He made that statement maybe 20 years ago when I was a, a, a new pastor. We're not as mature as we think we are. And I thought, no, nah, that's not true. Come on. That, you, can't be, you can't be right. Yeah, it's true. I've, I've observed over the years, we are not as, and that goes for myself too. We are not as mature as we think we are. We're just We're just not. And the more you realize, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a rebuke from Paul. You who are so well fed, who've, who've received so much, why are you just like infants now? I, can, I can't even treat you as spiritual. You're supposed to have the mind of Christ, but I have to treat you almost like somebody who's ev like everybody else. That's a problem that he's calling out. He goes on to say, I'm not writing this to shame you. But to warn you is my dear children. Here's his motive. You know, when, when, if you're an a, adult to, to a child and you're giving some instruction, a lot of times shame can come up. So he wants to make sure, I'm not doing this so that you feel ashamed. I, but I want to warn you. It's like, don't cross that street. Don't go down that road. You will get hurt. You'll get injured. So this is why he's writing this. Here's one of the things he says is a real problem in the church. It's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality. Well, that's a problem, right? But then he goes on, and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. You know, I heard that word abusive a little earlier too. And, and, and don't you see the storylines in the church, the horrific reports that are beyond the scope of what you can imagine for people who aren't supposed to be spiritually minded 
That's happening in Corinth. He goes on in chapter 6 to say, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? This is about lawsuits. The Christians then uh, who, uh, who are gathering as a church are not just divided but also suing each other. He says, you can't, can't you take your, your, your disagreements to the, to the people in the church and they're the ones who are going to judge the world, but you can't even do that. You're outsourcing these things, but you have everything you need to solve it here. In chapter 8, verse 9, he says, Be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. That was a problem that they had. The problem was, there it is. <laughs> that people had freedom in Christ and they were exercising in a way that caused other people who weren't as mature to stumble problem he says in chapter 10 verse 14 my dear friends flee from idolatry idolatry substituting anything for God the, he's not the real thing right whatever it might be and and the context of that as we'll see later is even in the Lord's Supper and how we understand that as well but underneath it is worshiping the wrong thing one of the messages I heard on this is uh, in July 2 we went to our daughter's church up in Oxford. They happened to be going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, so I heard it several times. It was interesting, uh, too. The statement this, this man made was, we make Jesus look like us if we are immature, rather than the other way around. We make Jesus look like us, rather than the other way around. They can be taken in a couple of different ways. I mean, maybe from the outside world, they think you are the representation of Jesus. Or perhaps you're just making him in your own image. Like you're saying, everything I've got everything figured out. Jesus looks just like me. Doesn't it sound a little immature? A little high, high inflated view of yourself? They had a problem too. Um, in chapter 11, when you gather together as a church, there are divisions among you. He's going to talk about the Lord's Supper and people treating it, mistreating it, and rushing forward. And you can hear this theme kind of coming out too. Brother, stop thinking like children. I love this. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. When it comes to immorality, be like innocent children. In your thinking, in order to do that, you have to be mature. But it was a problem. They were thinking like children. They had everything reversed the wrong way. He gets into chapters 12 through 14 and talks a lot about spiritual gifts and he ends that discussion by saying everything should be done in an orderly way. There were problems in the church. Things were just a little bit out of control and it was confusing to people. And those were some of the problems that he calls out. So, problems he calls out. Big picture. Then he has addressed his specific issues that they had written to him about or he'd heard about. And he responds very specifically to them. So this is what he says in response to the specific issues. First, now, he says, for the matters you wrote about. So they had written something, and he says this. Chapters 1 through 6, he's talking about some other things. He says, now, I'm going to get to the matters you wrote about. And starting in chapter 7, he talks about marriage. One of the things they had asked was, 
what about marriage? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it okay if somebody doesn't marry? And he talks about other issues around that. So he'll talk about marriage in chapter 7 and a perspective on that. He spends chapter 7 doing that. Then in chapter 8, he says now about food sacrifice to idols. Sacrificed, past tense. Food sacrifice to idols. That's what he talks about there. How do we understand it? Seems a little disconnected from us, but we'll talk about how that's related. Then in chapter 12, he says, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers. I do not want you to be ignorant. So he's responding to a letter, and they said, Hey, what about marriage? What about food sacrifice to idols? What about spiritual gifts? And he dialogues with each of those. And at the very end in chapter 16, he says, now about the collection for God's people. And they were saying, what do we do? How do we do this in terms of collections? So problems he addresses along the way, some coming from these specific issues, and then specific issues. And now, just real briefly, some life-changing perspectives that he provides. These are the things that we're going to be looking at along the way more in depth. But consider this, again, starting in chapter 1, verse 10. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. I call that a life-changing perspective because Paul is saying, you, if you are a part of the bride of Christ, if you've been redeemed by him, you do not have the spirit of the world and you've got the spirit of Christ. The spirit who is from God. That's the same spirit who was there in the agency of creation, who brought order from chaos. The same spirit who authored through, through those vehicles God chose, the very words that we're reading right now, is the very same spirit who Christ breathed on his disciples, is the very same spirit who indwells you. That's life-changing. You have the spirit of of God. And you can understand because of that something God has given us that people who don't have the Spirit cannot. That's life-changing. In verse 18, we sing this already, the message of the cross, that message that God wrapped himself in flesh, walked among us, died for our sins, exchanges his perfect Righteousness, all that he's done for our imperfect righteousness. So you're now a saint in Christ, even though as you struggle with sin, that sounds pretty foolish to a lot of people. But to you, it's the power of God. It's real. It's vibrant. It's, it's energizing. It's, it's game-changing. The, the plan of God from all eternity being worked out in you, in your flesh and blood, your thoughts. That message of the cross, so foolish to some, is the power of God for you. In chapter 6, he says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will be mastered by nothing. I will not be mastered by anything. He's talking here a little bit about, starts getting into sexual immorality and, and freedoms. And what a, what a great principle he says here. We've got all kinds of freedom, but nothing is going to master me. You do not, you cannot be enslaved by anything except for Christ and his desires for you. You've got tremendous freedom. So if you are being mastered by something else, then he says, put on the new mind of Christ. 
And it's a pretty, pretty high stakes here. Uh, he ends that passage by saying, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You're not your own. The, you belong to Christ. And you honor the one who's purchased you, delivered you from sin by, by living a life that he has put in front of you. And by saying no to some things and yes to those other things as well. And see, this comes from the inside-out change. That's life-changing. In chapter 9, verse 12, he says, We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And we'll, we'll talk about what he had in mind when, when he gets there. Um, he's talking about the rights of the apostles and what he does, but he is so intent that other people hear this life-changing perspective that he is, that the gospel of Christ is true. He's going to remove every possible barrier he can. He does not want to hinder the gospel of Christ. So when I say life-changing perspective, you know, we'll get there eventually too, but it's like, how are you being shaped by thinking, is there anything I'm doing, saying, watching, believing that's going to hinder people from seeing Christ? Paul says, I'm going to do anything I can to make sure I'm not the hindrance. That there's not some time in a person's life when they stand up and say, I'd be a Christian if it weren't for, and they fill in the blank and your name's there. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll save that conviction for later a little bit. And then he, he repeats this again, this everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. We saw that already. Everything is permissible, probably a statement going around the Corinthians, which, by the way, Corinthianazo means I commit immorality. The Corinthians were a pretty loose bunch, just historically speaking. But not everything is constructive. And here he's talking about interpersonal relationships. You might have the freedom to do something, but again, you've got to think, if it's not constructive, I can't engage in it. I won't do it. How's my speech shaped by that? Is it constructive? The choices that I make, the way I talk to people around me as well. In chapter 10, verse 31, he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You see how that's a life-changing perspective, right? It doesn't matter if you're just munching on a Cheeto or if you're hiking in the Alps, changing a diaper, flipping the page in a book. You're doing it all for the glory of God. That is completely life-changing. Chapter 12, verse 7, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So he's saying here that each one of you who is a, a part of the bride of Christ has a manifestation of the Spirit. You have something given to you that God's Spirit has given you, and it's for the common good. Everybody matters. You've got something unique to contribute. That's life-changing, and we all desire that. He talks in chapter 13 and 14 about spiritual gifts. He says, I'll show you the most excellent way Follow the way of love. Such a great chapter, read again in Weddings 2, and I feel more confident about that than the Shrek analogy. When I say 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says this, 
And this is a picture of love. But that picture is not just in husband-wife relationships. It's what it looks like to be part of the church. The beautiful, messy bride of Christ. Love is the excellent way. It's patient and kind. I mean, he's talking about community relationships, faith relationships, people who annoy you. But they're with you in this as well. So, he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. You know, there, there are gifts that have been given and some maybe you don't have. And Paul says you can desire those gifts. There should be a, a, a wanting inside of us for the common good, not for ourselves, not to put ourselves on a pedestal so that other people say, oh, you've got a gift I can really see. And he talks all about that, as we'll see. And then when he shifts into chapter 15, getting close to the end of the book, there's this really lengthy treatment on the resurrection. He begins by saying, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you've taken your stand. So he says at the end of this, now let's get back to the basics. You heard the good news of Christ. That's where you stood and I'm going to remind you of it. And then he goes to talk about the resurrection. What difference does it make that Christ really raised from the dead? And this is attached to one of the problems because he says apparently some people were saying Christ didn't raise from the dead. And there's no resurrection for the dead. And Paul says we are absolutely without hope if that's the case. But it's not the case. It is true. Christ did raise from the dead. And you will raise from the dead as well. And so you have every bit of reason to hope. The God, there's a God who raises people from the dead. And the first fruits of that was his son, bursting forth from the grave. And that's a, a, a reality to be anticipated, but something that happens in our own lives as well. He's always making things new. Down payments on a future resurrection that make a difference now. And one of the ways it makes a difference as he begins to close out this book at the very, close to the very end in chapter 15, verse 58. I love this. Therefore, brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I mean, this, this is such an encouraging verse to me. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity. Everything's meaningless. It's like a chasing after the wind. Paul says, that's not true for you. The things that you're doing right now, though you cannot see the fruits of them, are not in vain. There is nothing wasted and there is nothing useless when it is done here as a work of the Lord. You will reap a harvest when the time is right. And look, my timeline is right now is the right time. God's timeline is completely different. And sometimes we lose hope of that. So he says, look at the resurrection. It's true. Your work in the Lord is not in vain. Don't give up. Let nothing move you. Stand firm. And give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. I know for me, when I'm working, working, working in these different kinds of ways and you don't see it immediately, you can grow weary, can't you? And it, after a while, when you don't see anything happening, you just want to give up. And Paul says, you can't do that. Continue giving yourselves. Nothing is wasted. There is no moment in time that is useless. God makes everything perfect in his time. Do you think that's life-changing? 
Can you imagine how different you could think about life and especially the things you've poured your heart into that seem to be netting absolutely zero return? The ROI is zero as far as I can tell. But Paul is saying, based on the resurrection, that is not true. That's a lie from the devil. Because nothing you do, zero, is vain as you pursue this work of the Lord. Now, if that doesn't give you strength and energy for moving on, I don't know what will. This is what we need to be reminded of. And the, good, the, the fun thing is we get to unpack all this in the weeks ahead. And like I said last week, there's some really hard words here. I mean, he's saying things that are kind of, kind of make, I don't know, feels a little bit PG-13, might be generous with some of this stuff because he's, he's going to be talking about some hardcore issues that are real things that we need to struggle with. And he says, you can't stay there. And that's the good news too is he's saying, look, if this is where you are, repent, turn away. Move forward in your relationship with God. He's writing this so that we won't stay there. And so you might be on a scale and look at somebody and say, I'm not nearly as bad as you are. Well, that may be the case. But your comparisons to Christ, who is perfect, how are you looking now? So let's let that person and the Holy Spirit be at work in that person, move them, while he's doing the same to us as well. And let's grow up to a maturity. That's our goal so that we can give glory to God in all things. So the hope is, however many weeks from now, we're all just a bit more mature because we've listened to the words of Paul that are universal in application. They're written to the Corinthians way back in the mid-50s because that's how God's Spirit works. He's continuing to speak to his people no matter where we are or who we are. So I'm anticipating that in the weeks ahead, and hopefully you are as well. We'll begin in chapter 1 next week. Just take, take a handful of verses and work our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we can't avoid the hard things because we're plowing right through. So we'll do the best we can. Pray for me, others. Drew Trends will uh, be preaching in September. And, of course, Eric Ulianto probably in October as well. So pray for all of us. Speaking of prayer, next week, since we heard about the children's ministry, uh, the elders are going to be in with K-Kids, um, introducing themselves and praying for children uh, and for the school year that's ahead of them, making sure that they're uh, available and, and you know who they are. Um, your prayers make a huge difference. I invite you to continue praying. 10 a.m., I'm there. Uh, right over here, you'll see a little sign if you want specific prayer. We're still focusing on prayer. For, for this year and want everybody to be engaged in it. Father, we pray now that you would grow us up. Each one of us is a certain, it'd be interesting to see if we could see a spiritual maturity age line above each one of us. What age would be shown? Some of us might just be new babes in Christ, one month old, though we're 60 years old biologically. And others, though they're just 27, might be in, into their 40s. I, I don't know, but wherever that number is, we want it to push toward maturity so that you would be glorified and we can be the bride of Christ. Beautiful, messy, for sure. But the bride of Christ purchased by the one who laid his life down for us so that we could know the freedom offered in Christ. So may this message that seems foolishness
to some be the absolute wisdom of God. Send your Holy Spirit to do his work in us as we push on toward maturity in the weeks ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response just a, a little bit of a reprise uh, from the message of the cross.